Okay, now, you all heard the story in, in Galatia, I mean in Genesis, right? Do you remember what you heard in Genesis? Do you remember how the Bible records the awful, awful behavior of the brothers towards Joseph? Remember that? Is that you and your siblings and your children? Every time we come to Scripture and we find an account of the sin of men and women in Scripture, you know, think of Isaac and Rebecca, where Rebecca dresses up her favorite, Jacob, right? Makes him look like Esau, smell like Esau, feel like Esau. Remember that? And then sells him to her husband as Esau, and he gets the blessing. Remember that? Is that you as a mother and as a wife? Is that you? Manipulating your husband so that your favorite child gets the wealth of your your home. Okay? When you read the account of Abraham passing off his wife Sarah twice as his sister, Is that you? When you read about David, is that you with Bathsheba? When you read about Bathsheba women, instead of hating David, which you all do, think just a moment about Bathsheba. Two consenting adults. Is Bathsheba you? As we go through Scripture, we're constantly presented with the proper diagnosis of us by story after story after story after story, all right? And they just go on and on and on, and there's never a story about you, the way you present this morning, all prettied up here in church. That person never exists in Scripture. If, if, if we see that person, that's the woman who's washing Jesus' feet with her hair, but none of you ever cry in worship. <laughs> Do you understand? In other words, if that's the best we see in Scripture is the woman who washes Jesus' feet with her tears in her hair. We don't even see that in church because when we get dressed up, we don't go overboard. <laughs> you know, We don't let our hair down and start washing people's feet. And so if, if I can, I want you to see salvation history. I want to give you a big picture today. I want you to see Adam and Eve in the garden, all right? So in the garden, what happens? God says you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? He tells Adam that, and what happens? They both eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve is seduced by the serpent, and then Eve seduces her husband. And then he listens to her, he eats, and then the fall happens. God said, when you eat of it, you will surely die. The snake said, you will not surely die. God's just a little bit jealous of his own position and doesn't want to share it with you, right? Okay? And so they've been told they'd die. They've been told it was evil. They went ahead and did it, right? And then we move way across. We move across the patriarchs. We move across 
you know, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, we move on and on and on and on. We move through the Gospels where we see wickedness constantly. Think of the fact that Jesus lived a life of humiliation. How does that happen? God's Son comes. He comes to serve us perfectly. And he lives a life of humiliation. Not humility, but humiliation. What's the difference between humility and humiliation? You choose humility, humiliation you have forced on you, right? He lives a life of humiliation. How does that happen? God comes, he lives a life of humiliation among us. That must say something about who we are and what we are, right? We look at the disciples singled out, spending three years right next to Jesus. Perfect. And in the upper room, right before he dies, there arose a reasoning among them as to which of them was the greatest. Then he gets busted, and they all flee. So there's the Gospels, and then we move into the epistles. And what do we see in the epistles? Well, next week a class will start. Philippians, the epistle of joy. And, of course, that's always why everybody, if they, if they like to preach from Scripture as opposed to poetry, they will choose the epistles, and then they will choose Philippians because it's the epistle of joy. But at the center of Philippians is this nasty thing called Yodia and Syntyche. And the Apostle Paul says, I plead with Yodia and Syntyche to agree with one another in the Lord. And so apparently even the epistle of joy has some problems in that church. And then you get to Corinth. And it's like, what's Corinth? Well, Corinth is a church of snobs and elitists. Everything about Corinth is like the name in the ancient world. You know, they've got all the wealth of Greece. They are at the matrix of a bunch of shipping routes. So they're urbane and cosmopolitan. All right. Um, they're educated. When they would get together for the Lord's Supper, they would use their wealth to humiliate their brothers and sisters in Christ. So the rich people would have tons of food and tons of wine, while there were other people at the table that didn't have anything to eat or drink. Now imagine turning the Lord's Supper into that. Not only that, but they had a pecking order for spiritual gifts. And the people that had been given the gift, for instance, of speaking in tongues would like, you know, walk around like this, look at my supernatural gift. And so prophecy was despised in the Corinthian church. The gift of prophecy, nobody valued it, but tongues. And you have to stop and ask yourself, why on earth would people look up to tongues and down on prophecy. And if you think that, it's because you've never known a prophet. (laughs) Jesus sums up prophets well in saying they're always killed. The only ones you ever honor are the ones that are dead because they can't speak anymore and they're in a tomb, and so you go and give them flowers. All right? Prophets are are really hated because prophets speak to us about who we are and not who we would like to present ourselves as. They speak to whole churches that way. They speak to whole nations that way. 
And so Corinthians couldn't stand prophecy. Why? Because they were proud. And so they looked down on the gift of prophecy, but boy, tongues, now there's a gift. You know, and other supernatural sign gifts. Oh, yeah, you know, God's speaking directly to him, you know. But the prophet, God's not speaking to him. He's just having a dyspeptic episode, you know. He just woke up this morning with acid stomach, drank too much coffee, you know. So that's the Lord's Supper in Corinth. That's the spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are used as a way of getting higher in the pecking order, right? And then you've got the issue of the preaching and teaching. And what you have is you have them wanting preachers and teachers who were worthy of the congregation. Preachers and teachers who had gifts commensurate with Corinth. And what were those gifts? Well, today they would be the gift of a terminal degree, a doctorate, and the gift of a British accent. Right? Because after all, we, in our great dignity, given the heritage of our congregation, and right now I want to do that old Monty Python thing, uh, <laughs> which is a way of saying, uh, I, in my great dignity, deserve better. And this is Corinth. This is the people in the church in Corinth. And the Apostle Paul is writing them in 1 Corinthians. And he looks at them and he smells them and he touches them, and he doesn't recognize them, and they're his children. Can you imagine not smelling your child? <laughs> you know what your child smells like, right? And Paul looks at them and says, you're my children. I don't smell you. I don't touch you. There's like nothing here. Nothing, nothing. Now, let me read our scripture. He says this. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So now you have a feel for what he's doing. He sees pride everywhere. He sees guys trying to get a leg up on everybody else. Uh, He's seeing the Lord's supper corrupted. And the unbelievable thing about this church is, They're proud about spiritual gifts. They're proud at the Lord's table. They're proud about what kind of man they should have as a preacher and teacher. And Paul's no longer worthy of them. Paul's having to, like, restore himself to a position of leadership in the church that he gave birth to, right? And at the center of the church is the guy who's having sex with his father's wife. And he says to them, you're proud. 
crowd. And this is such a perfect illustration of the church in America today. We have men having sex with their daughters, their father's wives. We have men having sex with animals in our churches. We have people killing their unborn children in our churches. We have teenagers who just are intimate sexually. We have, listen, this is the church. This is not the world. This is the church, trust me. I know you. I'm a shepherd. I know my sheep. This is us. This is the church you grew up in. This is what you are. And the Corinthians were proud. This last week I was down in, um, down in Florida. My brother got a free uh, little apartment half an hour from the ocean, so we didn't go to the ocean together. But, and so I went down there. It was very nice because it was free. So you didn't feel like you were hemorrhaging money. And Dave and I sat and talked about what we wanted to write and how, how we wanted to lead and stuff like this. Very sweet time. Amazing that two brothers can actually get along with each other for a week. My mother will vouch for that. And uh, I was reading a couple of things this week, and one of the things I was reading was talking about the wisdom of the cross. And what it was saying is that the cross is the supreme statement of wisdom the world has ever seen. So how do you establish that? Well, you talk about the substitution and all the... But the way this guy established that the cross is the wisest thing that has ever hit the world is by saying nobody would ever have conceived of it. No one would ever have come up with the cross. And then he said, but the problem is that we live 2,000 years from it, and so we've prettified it, we've gussied it all up. And the cross has none of the horror that it had to every, every single person in the ancient world. And so when we hear Paul say, I've determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, we think, well, yeah, you know what? I have a necklace and I haven't worn it in a while, so I'm going to like wear my cross again. <laughs> you know, it's like, you're going to wear what? You're going to put like an electric chair on your neck? You're going to like take a lynching rope and like wear it on your neck? And the very fact that it's a, an ornament of a woman above her bosom shows that we have completely lost the message of the cross, right? Completely. What is the ornament that God's pleased with? That under the cross, you will take up your cross daily and follow him. That's the ornament that God wants. And so we say, yes, in the cross of Christ I glory. Oh, the old rugged cross, you know, we have all these songs, Right? And so I sing them and I love the cross of Christ and I 
teach the I share the cross of I give testimony to the cross of Christ. And we look at this text and we say, that's me. And it says in here, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. And you say, yes, I give testimony all the time. But you know, that Greek word there, by the way, it's the same word that's in the first chapter of Acts where Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses. That word witness and this word testimony, same word, right? Now, you want me to say it to you in Greek? Marturius. Now, what word do you think comes from that Greek word? Martyr. That's, that's the word. And so when Paul is talking about the testimony of God, he's not talking about a woman getting up in front of the church and emoting about her subjective experience of the grace of God. What the Apostle Paul is talking about is the testimony of God, which is what? It is, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's the dove landing on his head. This is God. This is the Son of God. And then it's God lifting that Son up on the cross, at the crossroads of Jerusalem, in the sight of everyone, naked, with blood pouring out of him. And he's bearing the sin of the world. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the cross. And we claim that we love the cross. We don't love the cross. What we do is we pretty it up. We put it in our bosom, right? And then we put it at the top of our steeples, right? And then we talk about in the saying, in the cross of Christ I glory. And not one of us, day by day, shows our adoration for the cross by taking up our cross daily and following him. And that's the only way that there's any indication that we love the cross of Christ because we love it so much that we take up our cross. Because he said, if a man's going to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And instead, we've turned all of Protestantism into an effort to remove the cross from Christian faith and to claim it's part of the Reformation heritage. That's why Roman Catholics are infinitely closer to the cross of Christ today than Protestants are. Because in the Roman Catholic Church, there is still a call to fear God. There is still a call to holiness. You say legalism. I say, yeah, but legalism is, is, is so much better than license and antinomianism. I have consistently seen over the years that Roman Catholics who have been raised in a real Roman Catholic church are much closer to faith in Jesus Christ than an evangelical. And I make no apology for saying that. None. It's my pastoral judgment that evangelicals have been inoculated against the fear of God, against anything having to do with our God being a consuming fire. And they have no idea what the cross of Christ actually looked like in the system Laban. <laughs> you know, I just think of my professors at seminary. There's a system Laban. In other words, at the time, right there, 
as it was really then, okay? If you know the cross and you're reduced to being an old man and having your son change your diapers, okay? You cling to that humiliation because it is the cross that Jesus Christ has called you to bear in honor of him. Now, why would I use such an illustration? Well, because can you imagine one thing? Is there anything that we're more trying to flee from in America today than all the baby boomers having to be cared for by, by, by their children? <laughs> I mean, think about it. That's why euthanasia is growing. That's why physician-assisted suicide is growing. Not one of us wants the humiliation of having to be cared for by our children that we change their diapers. And so all America's gaga over denying the cross. And we think, oh, Tim, Jesus wasn't talking about diapers. Jesus was talking about being a witness. I say, yeah, maturious. Can you think of one thing that is more martyrious today than changing your father's diaper? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty intense, right? And so here Paul is, he loves this church. He gave birth to this church. And he says, people, people, did I come to you in a British accent and the terminal degree? Did I? Did I come to you with great erudition? <laughs> Did I come to you with a large vocabulary? Now, Mick is laughing. Go ahead, tell him why you're laughing. Yeah, that's why Mick's laughing. When I first came to Bloomington, I had been a pastor of a couple of churches in the rural um, Wisconsin, mostly farmers. And then a very <laughs> important church called me and wanted me to, to come and consider being their pastor. I was not looking for a job, but they were a church in crisis, and they'd heard about me from a famous friend of mine. And so, to the chagrin of many of them, they ended up hiring me. I got the princely vote total of 76% out of 100. <laughs> and I went into the pulpit there, and I began to try to prove myself to them. And you know how you prove yourself to a bunch of IU administrators and faculty and staff, right? You use a large vocabulary. And I used to talk to my mother, who was over there, about my preaching. And she would say, Timothy, what are you doing? You're just trying to impress them. And I'd always say, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I just could not resign myself to knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, let me stop here and say... When Paul says he determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, he is not referring to only preaching sermons on the cross. 
what he's saying is, I determined to know nothing that was not completely and utterly humble, just as humble as the cross. That's the meaning of that statement. We always think it means that you should never preach anything but an evangelistic sermon. <laughs> right? That's not what it means. What it means is, I determined to give up anything that would give me status and influence and bragging rights, and instead simply to focus on the cross in all its utter grotesque, despicable horror. In other words, I determined to be humble, to be simple, to be zealous, to be direct, and not to suggest or wonder, but to proclaim. Did you see that word in the text? Proclaim. I don't know what version you have, and maybe I'm wrong. Yes, proclaiming to the testimony. Nobody today ever proclaims. Did you notice that? Everybody sort of suggests and, and, and wonders. And, and so Paul, he came in, he was utterly direct. If you read the epistles with eyes that see, that really see, you will see that in the epistles read for 2,000 years now in the church, is unbelievably grotesque directness. He was direct. He was honest. He says in Acts 20 that he never failed to give to them anything that God told him to give to them. He says, day and night with tears, I never stopped encouraging you. Is that what the text says? Is that what the text says? That's what the evangelical text says. Day and night, for three years I was among you, Day and night, never stopped encouraging any of you. But that's not what it says. What the text actually says is, I never stopped warning you. Day and night with tears. So here's how the Apostle Paul describes his ministry as a faithful shepherd. And automatically what happens is our modern conceit jumps into gear here. And we think, yeah, but in the ancient world there was a lot of sin. But we've evolved. You know, we're so much more progressive. You know? And so what do we do? We rob Scripture of its power to save us because we deny that we need to be saved the way disgusting people like David and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob needed to be saved. And Adam and Eve and Yodia and Sintiki. And people, if you will think about what Isaiah 53 actually says, he was despised of men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And when that despised suffering servant showed up among them, the one they had been told about, they esteemed him not. And then today, churches around the world are filled with people who know Isaiah 53 and who supposedly know the cross and have nothing of humiliation, nothing of pastors who are zealous, nothing of the fear of God, nothing of hell. It's just every day in every way the world is getting better and better. And are you happy? And when 
we get ready to die, you actually see death. Death. It's still just happy. You know, it's not that word that I said in the first service, I won't say in the second one. But it's the stuff you pick up through the baggie when you're walking your dog. You know, that's the closest we ever get to anything that Scripture actually names. It actually does say it. As a matter of fact, here's Calvin. Calvin is talking about how the Apostle Paul determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he says this. He paraphrases that and he says this. He says, no knowledge was of such importance to me as to make me desire to know anything other than Christ. And then he he puts this word in. He says, even if he was crucified. (laughs) Now that's good scripture translation. I wasn't going to have Jesus Christ. Anything about Jesus Christ, even if he was crucified. And now we begin to get a picture of the cross. All right. And then he says, this is a beautiful verse. Now, I've been reading Calvin for many, many years. And I don't even remember another time where he says, this is a beautiful verse. Generally, Calvin's more antiseptic than that. And Calvin says, this is a beautiful verse. And from it, we may learn what faithful ministers ought to teach and what we must be learning throughout our life. And in comparison with that, everything else is to be counted as... But I won't use the word. But it's that word again. And that's what Calvin says. Calvin says, Paul distinguishes between speech and wisdom. And this confirms, Calvin says, what I mentioned before, that so far he has been speaking not about mere empty chattering, but about the whole culture of human learning. And how many of you here are getting graduate degrees? Raise your hand. Come on, raise it up high, high, high. Okay, now look around. Okay? And we're not having school right now. School's out. And so there are a bunch of people missing. We have a constant succession of people here who are devoting their lives to getting human learning. And yet we have the Apostle Paul, having been Gamaliel's student, saying that he has counted this to be that word again. All right? And Calvin calls it that word And so you've got Adam and Eve and real sin, real sin. And you have, (laughs) how about Cain and Abel? Okay. You've got Noah. And you know what the world was like then? You've got the Israelites at the bottom of Mount Sinai. All the way through Scripture to Corinth. And then today, what? People, we don't need the cross, right? I don't need the cross. I'm evolved. I'm integrated. Right? I mean, who needs the cross? We go to our small groups. No confession of sin because we don't need the cross. We go to work and we claim we believe in evolution because the stupidity 
of that account of the origin, you know, that particular religious group's myth of human origins, you know, we don't believe in wives submitting to husbands. We don't believe in fathers disciplining their children. We don't believe in hell. If it is hell, it's only because, you know, I don't want to be around God, and so God lets me go. And this is who we are. And people, you're not pulling one over on me. I know what you are. (laughs) Now, I don't know all of you, but I know enough of you, and the elders know the rest of you. Your small group leaders know you. And the fact is, you... The only hope for you is the cross of Jesus Christ. And then what? And then we got the emergent dudes coming along and calling the doctrine of substitutionary atonement divine child abuse. (laughs) And all they're doing is just saying what the rest of us are all thinking when we show up at church all prettified. Got, you know, baubles and gussied up and everything, you know. Listen, you are... So hopeless in your sin, you, that there is only one possible solution or you will spend eternity in hell in conscious torment. And God is not apologetic about that. He made hell for you and for people just like you and me. And it wasn't an accident and he didn't discover it. He made hell. And you, in your conscience, if you've been under the true preaching of the word, know that you have no hope. This is why we see again and again in Scripture, they come to the ministers of the word and say, what must I do to be saved? You know, one of the most delightful things in the New Testament to me is the Philippian jailer. I mean, here this dude is, like an officer in the Roman military. He's got a jail, a prison. In other words, he has some status, right? He thinks that he's going to lose his life because all his prisoners escaped after the earthquake, right? And when he finds that they're safe, he says, what must I do? That's how close your conscience is to being uttered Every single moment of every day of your life, every single one of you knows that there is no hope for you. That's the truth. You know there's no hope for you. And all it takes is for you to be at the, at the very edge of death. And the line that comes out of you in all your power as a Roman officer is, what must I do to be saved? And then, then you understand that this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. (laughs) No! It can't be! But it is. And every single sermon and every testimony 
Every teaching, every mother speaking to her teenage son needs to expose our condition for what it is. And then needs to say, look at the cross, look at the cross. And every sermon should be just as humiliatingly direct as the cross of Jesus Christ. (laughs) That's what we're supposed to be about. And what do we do? We gussy it all up. We go into the Sistine Chapel. You've got Michelangelo. you got that wonderfully formed. Can you believe the artwork? Oh, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Everything is all gussied up. You know what gussy means? It means to try to make an ugly woman look pretty. <laughs> and, and, and it's God's kindness that he sees our ugliness and our sin just the way it really is. And then he gives us his son. And he says, if you believe in him, then you're holy. And it isn't your holiness. It isn't that he inspires you to live better. I look around at you who believe in Jesus Christ, and I think if this is better, shoot me. And it's not because you aren't Christians. It's because in this life, we will suffer with our sin as Christians because sanctification is an ongoing work. And it's bloody, just like the cross. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. And oh boy, all we want is justification. A work that's complete in time, once and for all. You know, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. Why does our soul need rest? What must I do to be saved? Because you are Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You're Bathsheba. You're Yodia and Sintiki. You're the woman caught in adultery. You are Judas killing yourself. You have killed your unborn children. You are a rebel against your parents. You're an unfaithful minister of the gospel. You're an elder who has betrayed your sheep and sat at home eating bonbons. And then you go to the cross and you say, Christ, wash me. Wash me. And he says, If you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you your sins. And and that doesn't do much for me, but the next statement does. And cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A Christian desires three things with respect to sin. Justification, that it doesn't condemn sanctification, that it doesn't rain, and glorification. And I can't remember how it ends. That it will not be. And glorification, that it will not be. So listen, people, what's the moral of this text? What's the application? What do we do? Well, what you do is take all your baubles and all your your gold guilting and all your all that crud off the cross and see it as it is. Take your heart and open it up. And look at who you are. You. 
who you are, not who your mother thinks you are, but who you are. And it's awful. And then go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I come. Wash me with your blood. And you say, well, not. Yeah, blood. Unless you drink my blood and eat your body, my body, you may have no part in me. Let's pray.